Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. It's Pride Month. We love to celebrate our LGBTQIA authors all year long. But now, we wanted to take the opportunity to shine a spotlight on what it means to share stories about those who are marginalized and underrepresented. We're proud of our authors and the brave work they do to help kids feel less alone in the world. Today, you'll hear from three outstanding authors, Mason Deaver, Kaysen Callender, and Bill Konigsberg. Each will introduce you to their latest novels, talk about their creative process, and discuss what it means to write books that are giving some young readers the chance to see themselves truly represented in the pages of a book. First, here's Mason. Their debut novel, I Wish You All the Best, was published in May to critical acclaim. Welcome, Mason. Thank you for having me. It's so cool to be here. Well, congratulations on your groundbreaking novel. Thank you. (laughs) It's it's gorgeous. Tell us about I Wish You All the Best. It's about Benjamin DeBacher, who tries to come out to their parents as non-binary, and it does not go well. They are forced out of their home almost immediately and have to contact an estranged sister they haven't seen in 10 years. And their sister, Hannah helps them out, takes them to her house, you know, a city away. And Ben decides that to keep themselves safe, they need to go back in the closet. They start life at a new school. They meet new people. There's Hannah, uh, Thomas, Hannah's husband. And then eventually they meet Nathan, who is a very sunshiny, funny, wants to, like, take Ben under his wing and, like, teach Ben the ropes, and as a friendship there sort of develops, relationships and things start to change, and what Ben thought might have just been a friendship might be something more, and it's really just about, you know, learning to be comfortable with yourself and finding the right people out there for you. There is so much anxiety and Mm -hmm. anger and depression for Ben during their journey from Mm -hmm. the time they leave home and even while living with Hannah and Thomas. But Ben doesn't open up. I, I mean, I've, as one critic said, this book, it's so engrossing. You're turning the pages so quickly, but it's not easy to read. And understandably, Ben is, is torn inside. It's very much an internal dialogue, and Ben is very much alone. Um, therapy also, though, is a bit of a lifeline. Could oh, you yeah, talk about definitely. that oh, relationship yeah. in the book? Um, at a point when I was writing it, I think it's like less so nowadays, but therapy used to be like such a villainized thing, um, specifically in YA. It was almost like a signal to me, like, are you trying to say that getting help for mental illness is only going to make things worse? And I was like, is that really the message you want to send to younger readers who are going through this and could find a good therapist who can help and even save their life. And so Dr. Taylor is another one of those outlets for Ben because it's not an immediate cure. Even at the end of the book, I think Ben still has like so much 
so much further to go with their therapy and their journey with anxiety and depression. But having Dr. Taylor there was a good a good foundation for me because it takes Ben a while to warm up. And I've been in that situation too. I've been with therapists who I did not immediately click with. Eventually we found like a good back and forth like Ben and Dr. Taylor do. But yeah, I just wanted to make sure that like kids knew that help and finding help was not a bad thing. It's It can be such a life-saving thing. It can be such an important thing to find someone out there who, even if it's just one person, can understand what you're going through. Absolutely. But it's sometimes difficult to sort out the mental illness and the internal oh, yeah. struggle from the societal oh, yeah. messages that are so <laughs> harsh. And, and the book really raises awareness about things that may be simple to many th- people, like mm-hmm. going shopping mm-hmm. or going to a public restroom. What awareness do you hope to raise about what it's like to navigate this world? What needs to change? Mm-hmm. I actually... I got the chance to talk about this in, in the advanced reader copies of the book. I think they're in the Kindle edition, too, at least, but not in like the hardcover or anything. But I was asked to write an author's note, and in it, I talked about the... The two sort of groups of people who would be reading this book, you know, you have trans readers and you have cis readers. And for the trans readers specifically, I wanted to make sure that they knew they were not alone. No one is alone. Experiences in this world are so different and dynamic that no one is the same. And yet we still all somehow manage to sort of have this shared experience with a lot of things. And it's not going to be similar. Sometimes it's completely different, but you still have that. And I think that that's what's connecting a lot of us together. And then you have cis readers who I really wanted to take away that there's there's almost this completely different world that you may not be aware of. You may see someone on the street and they may be the most masculine or the most feminine person that you've ever seen in your entire life. And that doesn't make them any less non-binary or genderqueer, gender fluid, trans, anything like that. It's it, it was sort of me wanting to talk about making assumptions about people and even to the mental health aspect of it. You never know what someone's going through. I struggle a lot with anxiety and depression and I actually had someone yesterday tell me that you don't seem like you go through anxiety and I was like, well, <laughs> It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm good sometimes at hiding it and other times I'm completely not. And so it's just all about, you never, you never really know what someone's going through. You never know what's going on like in their head behind a potential mask that they may put up. That's so true. Now you very much in the book want Ben's parents to understand mm-hmm. something basic about them. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that is. They and also, they are incapable mm-hmm. of understanding that, yet Ben goes on, mm-hmm. which is such an important lesson. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about yeah. those two things? Um, that's, that's one of the harder scenes for me, which it takes place you know, early on. It's, it's just one, it's one thing. It's like the blurb in the front um, on the, the little flap cover says, like, it's just three words. And they, they still refuse. And there are so many... There's so many kids out there, or even adults, uh, teenagers, who try to come out not just to their parents, but like to friends, to classmates, to teachers. And 
it's just a complete refusal to understand. And that happens, it happens so often and it breaks my heart. And I, I see horror stories online of trans people trying to come out and like maybe they aren't kicked out of their home. I mean, a lot of them are like so many, so many homeless kids or trans kids. But sometimes it's just that, that refusal to believe like, no, you're my son, you're my daughter. Like you, you can't change anything about that. You know, you don't know you. And it's, it was really, it was really difficult to reach to that point. I thankfully come from a place where my mother is supportive and there's n there's no way she doesn't know. Uh, I was there when she read my author bio out to my great grandmother, which was like a strange experience. So there's no way she doesn't know. Um, but we don't necessarily talk about it, which for me being an adult uh, who does not live with her and you know, has moved out of the house and that, like that's that's a fine territory for me. But thankfully, you know, she, she has been supportive with the book and stuff like that. It's just, you know, we don't talk about it necessarily. But yeah, Ben's, Ben's parents were like a tricky, a tricky part of the book because I've seen, I've seen reviews that I've been tagged in. Like in my signing line, someone was like, I'm glad you didn't like redeem the parents. And I was like, I'm, I mean, that's not what I'm here to do. Like they're awful people and Ben never has to deal with them ever again, thankfully. And not many people have that luxury, but if you can get away from that, it's like such a life-saving thing. Right. And yet you, as you point out, coming out isn't just a one shot. No. It's like a continual yes. process. <laughs> and oh, yeah. some people may understand, some may not. And it, it seems like a continually mm -hmm. uphill battle in, mm -hmm. in a certain way. Ben is seeking this relief. Oh, yeah. Which is elusive. Yeah. And it's it, it's hard, especially being someone who does present like on the more masculine side of things. You know, I still have the, the feminine parts of myself that I like and like to explore. But coming out is it's not it's not a one-time thing um, because people want to assume that I am something they make the assumption that I am a boy and it's immediately like uh, he sir um, dude bro what's up like you know and it sucks <laughs> it really really sucks and he, he, it even happens times when I would expect it not to like you know I have my I have my pronouns in my Twitter bio. I like to think that the people who know me well enough know that my pronouns are they them, not he him or she her or anything else. But it still it still happens, and a lot of the time I'm like Ben. I'm you know this interaction's only gonna last five minutes. Like why bother? That could just be a fight, and it really does suck. And I'm trying to get better at it myself. It's it's such a difficult thing to go through. And there's still such hope yeah. with this book and with the joy and the love that Ben finds. Why was that so important to you to have in this story? It comes from not having a book like this whenever I was a kid. I've been talking to friends about their experiences in high school and middle school, not having the language back then that we have now. And it's only gotten better, thankfully. But if if I had had a book like this whenever I was in high school, I sort of wonder where I would be today. And, you know, I'm happy with my life right now, but, you know, you never know what could have happened. And 
so many trans books, even today, are not are not good. The first one I ever read that was actually an own voices novel that was about a trans person and like didn't end with the trans person being killed or murdered or their life is misery because they're trans was uh, If I Was Your Girl by Meredith Russo. And that book was life changing for me in a lot of ways. So I knew writing this book, I wanted it to be the same way that that book was for me. I want to give trans and non-binary teens this sort of symbol that they like things can get better. Things can and will get better. You just have to take your time. You have to find your people. You have to just I don't want to say like wait it out, but like you know things things can get better and a lot of the time situations suck. And you just have to be willing to to find the right people who can help make it better. What are you hearing from your young fans so far, your oh, young gosh. readers? Oh, it's been <laughs> it's been such a journey. Um, I, I hear a lot of the time that you know this is the first book with a non-binary protagonist I've ever read. Uh, a first the first book by a non-binary author with a non-binary protagonist. I've heard I love Nathan, which I understand. <laughs> I love <laughs> yeah. Nathan too. <laughs> we all do. He's my favorite. It's a weird thing. It's a good thing, but it is a weird thing because this one, like, there's no doubt in my mind that this is not the first book with a non-binary protagonist by a non-binary author. Lots of queer authors get sort of shoveled into like self-publishing and like smaller press and indie press just because there are people out there who uh, quote unquote don't get the voice or like, you know, whatever. But this is one of the first like the, that's been pushed by like a major publisher. And so it being the first of anything sets up a lot of expectation. And to know that I have been able to fulfill that expectation, at least for, you know, some readers, there are some people out there who don't like the book and that's fine. That's their opinion. But to know that it's been out there helping people, it really means a lot to me. I have to tell you, I was in a bookstore yesterday and the person helping me was non-binary and saw the book (laughs) in my bag and said, give them all the love. It, It means so much. Your story is unique, and yet you were able to tell it. How did you write this miraculous book? What was the genesis? How did you get it on paper? I started writing the characters of Ben and Nathan in a different story. That was probably in June of 2016. It was a college-age love story, uh, which was very difficult because I did not attend college and did not know how things worked. (laughs) You know, I did my two semesters of community college and I was like, I'm now, I'm done. Bye. <laughs> um, but I, I kept writing that book and I would like, I would hit these, these stumps where I just didn't know what was happening and I wasn't connecting with the story. And so I put it on hold, sort of just like shelved it away. And I was kind of wanting to write a book, but I was like, you know, maybe, maybe this one's not it. I'll just keep thinking of other ideas. But Ben and Nathan, they, they kept sticking with me. Because if it's if it's one thing I think that I did well in that old draft, it was Ben and Nathan and their relationship, and for them to like stick with me for three years now, I think that says something. Um, but then in December of 2016, I had sort of. D- come to the realization that I was non-binary and it was it was a very confusing time for me 
there are tons of resources online, uh, YouTube and just the internet in general. And looking into those was like a very, very affirming process. But then I started thinking about Ben and Nathan again, and I was like, well, what if Ben was non-binary? Because they were a cis boy before. And Ben sort of in that way became an outlet for me to get my own feelings out. Um, Not just about my gender, but, you know, depression, anxiety, um, relationships that I've had in the past. I finished writing it from December 2016 to January 2017, uh, which is not a long time, I think I've heard. It's kind (laughs) of up in the air. It was a disaster. It was like 130,000 words. I was like, God, oh. I don't even want to get back and look at that first draft. I did, I did a lot of editing and, you know, still wasn't done. But in March, started looking for agents. I signed with my agent, Lorna Bramo, in July. And then December, later that year, we sold the book. And from there, December, December 2017 to... May 2019 is just one long blur with this book because there are so many edit letters and past pages and stuff like that and changes that I don't remember making, but clearly I did. Uh, <laughs> like I'm sure I can go back and find the emails. Um, but yeah, that was that was pretty much it until uh, May 14th, 2019. Would you mind reading an excerpt from I Wish You All the Best? Everything was going to be fine, and I was finally going to get this huge thing off my chest, and it was going to be great, and they'd respect what I was telling them, and it was all going to be fine. I keep telling myself that now is the right moment. Over and over again, as the movie keeps playing and commercial breaks keep coming, but every time I open my mouth, the words fail me, and I can't force them out. I shouldn't be scared, but for some reason I am, no matter how much I've willed myself to not be. I can't get over this feeling. Maybe it's an omen or something, a sign that I shouldn't do this, except I have to do this. I can't explain it. I just feel it inside me. And underneath all that, I really do think it'll all be okay. It's cheesy, but I wait until the end of the movie when everyone is together and happy. I see a smile on mom's face. Dad looks indifferent, but he pretty much always looks that way. It has to be now. I can actually feel it. Hey, I wanted to talk to you two about something, I say, my voice really dry. Okay, Mom leans back on the couch, tucking her legs underneath her and balancing her head in the palm of her hand. What's up? Dad reaches for the remote and turns the volume on the TV down. I... I can do this. I just keep breathing. There's that tightness in my stomach, like something is twisting and twisting and it won't let go until the moment is over and everything will unravel and I'll feel free. I wanted to tell you two something. Dad looks at me now. This is it. It's kind of funny, actually. The script I wrote for myself, the one I typed in words so I'd cover everything I wanted to, it's just totally gone from my memory now. Like someone zapped it all away. Maybe that's for the best. Maybe this is how I'll be the most honest with them. If it just comes from me and not some rehearsed version of myself, maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll be better. I tell them slowly, At first, relief floods over me, and I think I actually feel myself relax. I just wish that feeling could have lasted longer. Oh my goodness, well, I'm going to ask you, but I I feel a little guilty. What are you working on now? Book two right now is about a a non-binary teenager, again, uh, Liam, who 
it's still in the closet, but like not for not for dangerous reasons. They're just trying to figure things out, and the best way for them to do that is sort of like you know just stick to themselves and you know think about things and work things out and you know just kind of want to stay inside right now and they have a crush on their best friend who they they've loved for like a really long time and they're worried that might not be reciprocated and then uh, one night their brother is their twin brother is tragically killed in an accident and so a lot of the book from there is a lot about the grief that Liam goes through Liam Liam's angry throughout a lot of the book. They're starting to feel ignored by their parents because their brother was, they start internalizing that like the brother was like the clear favorite. The brother was the star athlete who uh, who had scholarships and was like gonna go somewhere. And Liam's just kind of like, you know, doesn't have like a ton of aspirations after high school. And like, they're still, you know, they're only 15. They have plenty of time to figure things out. And so a lot of the book was just me wanting to, to basically write a very angry, Un- unlikable protagonist for the most part. Like I keep saying, Liam is angry. Liam is confused. They are. They're scared. They're worried. They they feel rejected, uh, unloved at even some points. And you know, I've already kind of internalized that a lot of people are not going to like Liam, and that's fine. Like they're the they're the character I need to write right now. So, yeah. well, congratulations Thank to you. you. <laughs> this book is going to save lives, and it's a great great read. Thank you. Really appreciate you being here. I wish you all the best means the world to so many young readers out there. We asked some of our followers why representation in children's books is so important. Here's what they told us. Students want to see themselves and their peers in the books they read. Representation matters because kids need to know they are not alone in the issues they face. Someone else has faced it and come out stronger. Readers deserve to read about characters they can relate to. Everyone's story deserves to be told, especially those who are marginalized. Representation matters because it can be a lifeline to a student who is looking to relate to someone. Characters can teach. A student can have hope that they are not alone in their journey. Now, we'll hear from Kaysen Callender. Kaysen will talk about their stunning debut novel, Hurricane Child, which is the 2019 winner of the Stonewall Book Award and the Lambda Literary Award. Welcome, Kaysen. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. And the book in front of us, Hurricane Child, is absolutely stunning. I'd love for you to tell our listeners about it. Uh, So Hurricane Child is about 12-year-old Caroline Murphy and her search for her missing mom. And she thinks that her mom's been stolen away by a spirit called the woman in black and taken to the spirit world. So she starts this journey to find her mom, but meanwhile, a new girl named Kalinda moves to town, and Caroline begins to develop feelings for Kalinda. And unfortunately, St. Thomas, which is where I'm from, is kind of, has quite a lot of cultural homophobia that both Kalinda and Caroline struggle with. So they're struggling with their identities while they're looking for Caroline's mother, and hurricane begins to bear down on the islands. To complicate matters, they go to Catholic school. Yeah, to complicate matters, they go to Catholic school, yeah. And they have to struggle with bullying. And there is a teacher who is also um, not so great with colorism. So there's a lot that Caroline has to deal with, unfortunately. And yet the reader just roots for her all the way, <laughs> all the way. How, how did you do that? What, what gives her such a will to... 
Yeah, so I think that Caroline's experiences are really based a lot on my own kind of feeling very isolated and very bullied growing up in St. Thomas and struggling with my own identity. So um, I think that what I did was make Caroline who I wish I had been and just made her completely determined and completely, as you said, like have the will to fight back and say, no, you know, you should not treat me this way. Like when like the stone throwing scene, I think, is like the biggest metaphor for how she reacts to people um, treating her in a way that she should not be treated. And I feel like that just kind of created this uh, powerful character that I really wish that I had that power when I was younger. Now you write about the intersection between race and sexuality. Tell us about some of the components of that and Mm -hmm. what people struggle with as, as you do. I think that it's difficult to separate the identity of race and sexuality. I think that for like white queer people, for example, or for people of color, those are different marginalizations. But when you're a queer person of color, you have to deal with quite a lot from all sides. So you have to deal with racism and you have to deal with um, anti-queerness within communities that you would hope would support you just because you have a piece of identity that relates to them as well. So it can be incredibly painful, for example, to be a part of the Caribbean community and to be black and to be like, these are my people, this is my family. But to face homophobia because I'm queer. I think that um, some people might have heard this as well growing up, but one thing I was told was that uh, only white people are queer, and if you are black and you are queer, it's because you have been around white people too much, which sounds absolutely ridiculous now as an adult, but when I was younger, that was kind of traumatic a little bit, yeah. It it was traumatic. And sometimes when you tell this story, people tend to laugh because it sounds funny, but it's anything but. It's anything but. And I think that more people than we realize actually do still think this to this day, think that um, queerness is not something that black people or black people cannot be queer. Or if they are, it's because they were influenced by what they consider like white media in some way. Mind-boggling um, to, that this still exists. Like, I wanted to get back a little bit to the island of, of St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. Caroline lives on Water Island. When she and Kalinda go in search of Caroline's mother, one really sees, too, this clash between affluent, mostly white tourists who are coming to this, what they see as a vacation playland. And here is Caroline feeling invisible and marginalized. Could you talk about that dynamic and what, how it plays out on the island and in your book? And also in my own experience growing up, there is kind of like this struggle because the um, islands depend so much on tourism for economy. So you almost have to be welcoming to tourists and you have to be uh, grateful that they are there. But there is still kind of a colonial uh, feel to the to, to tourism in general to kind of feel like you are almost in a zoo. When I was younger, I would feel like I am an animal in a zoo as people are kind of coming by on their buses, like staring at me and taking pictures like, oh, look at the little black island person, you know, so I think that that's an element that I wanted to put into the book because I think Caroline also feels like she herself is kind of just being separated. So the other issue is that, and the colonial colonialism is still continuing to this day because um, a lot of United States Virgin Islands people don't even have the same rights as people who live in the state. So we are still considered a territory. So to this day, it's still something that a lot of people from the island struggle with. The relationship between Caroline and Kalinda is so beautiful, and they have quite a bit in common, (laughs) not to mention they can both see the other world, as it were, the spirits. Could you talk a little bit about how their bond developed as you were writing the story? 
So their bond definitely developed with feeling like they are, well, for Caroline, it felt like she herself was very isolated and that she was alone. So to find out that Kalinda could also see spirits and particularly essentially like the woman in black, that was the first time that Caroline felt like she was not alone, that someone on a deeper level could relate to her in a way that she'd never been able to relate to anyone else. So that was the first moment that she I don't know, that first moment where you feel like you're not alone and someone can actually see you and feel you is one of the most powerful moments, I think, for any young person. But I also love the spirit that haunts <laughs> Caroline. Could you give us a little background on I, the, the spirit world? <laughs> My favorite question to ask students is who believes in ghosts and just to see all of the hands like shoot up. And it's the it's one of the best parts of the discussion. Um yeah, I believe in ghosts so much. I don't think you can live in the Caribbean and not believe in ghosts. I'm sure that there are a few people, but that the islands are just so filled with uh, history. Um, and you can just walk down the street and feel like something is brushing past you. And there are way too many stories of my dog, like, barking in the corner of the room for hours to not believe that, you know, that there are there's another realm or that there are other spirits um, kind of surrounding us. So, you know, I couldn't. I felt like I could not write a book that was set in the Caribbean that did not have spirits. I, it goes hand in hand. Some people will call it magical realism. I call it realism. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We're cool with that. <laughs> Could you read us an excerpt? Chapter one. My ma's voice is rough and low. When she speaks to strangers on the telephone, they call her sir. I guess it must be surprising to some people the way her voice sounds because she's so beautiful. Just about the prettiest woman you've ever seen. But I think it suits her just fine. I love the way her rough voice vibrates through the air like a beat on a drum. She sings around the house under her breath, since people say her voice is so ugly all the time. Why you wanna fly, blackbird? That's the song that's stuck in my head now. You ain't ever gonna fly. My dad's blue boat is flipped upside down in the backyard, which isn't really a yard, but a grove of dead trees and frogs that won't shut up at night. And the mangrove is just, cl is just close enough to the water so when it's time to go, I can get out of here with a quickness that will surely inspire the speed of light. My dad hasn't so much as looked at that boat in exactly one year and three months, which is the time that our lives revolve around, one year and three months ago. The boat's ready, and I'm ready, more ready than ever to get off this dumb rock, but I can't leave yet because I, know, I don't know where to go. But once I do, I'll leave that second without even a goodbye. So I turn my back on my father's boat and walk through the dead mangrove, brown water smelling like something besides the trees died, mosquitoes so thick in the air that they might as well be puffs of smoke, dead palms from coconut trees covering the ground like hairy carcasses. I get to the clearing, to the white road covered with dust and gravel and designs of tire marks, to my dad's house that's right there on the edge of the sea, waiting patiently for the day a wave will come and wash it away. I wondered, Case, what are you hearing from your young readers? It's been an emotional roller coaster ride. There have been so many um, young students. I've been lucky enough to be so, to do some school visits and to meet with uh, younger students who just really felt like they were being seen for the first time. Who I could, you know, I would ask the question, for example, like, "What was the first book that you felt like you were represented?" They would genuinely say "Hurricane Child," and I would have to pause for a second and try not to break down sobbing <laughs> in front of the entire classroom. Um, so it's been it's been really an incredible journey with people telling me how Hurricane Child has affected them. And what are your hopes and fears for your young readers? 
my hopes are that they're going to see themselves reflected a lot more in future books and feel like they are represented and feel like they are loved and feel like they are seen. I feel like when you're not seen in stories, that for it's something that I experience to this day. If I feel like I'm not seen in a story, it makes me feel like I am somehow lesser than. I don't want that for young readers anymore. My fear is that I myself am guilty of feeling like things have become so much better than they really are. And things have changed, definitely. In comparison to how they used to be, things have gotten so much better. But I still, and I did not realize it was to this extent, there are still students who will tell me, for example, I am not allowed to go to the GSA or my parents cannot know that I'm reading this book because they're queer characters. So my fear is that we will think that things are so much better that we will ignore the students who still really need or the young readers who still really need that help and support. Oh, that's so powerful. When was the first time you saw yourself reflected in a book? As a queer trans person of color, I can honestly say I've not seen myself reflected in a book just yet From the, for this identity, for as I started transitioning. When I was younger and I uh, saw myself as a girl, the first time would probably be Cassie from Animorphs. Yeah, that was the first. <laughs> it, was a, it was a big deal for me. I really, really loved Cassie. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I guess you'll be writing the book where you see yourself. Hopefully soon, yeah. Could you give our listeners a preview of King and the Dragonflies, which is due out in February 2020? We're all very excited here about it. Thank you. Sure. So King and the Dragonflies is about uh, 12-year-old Kingston James, whose brother has unexpectedly and tragically passed away. And he thinks that his brother has turned into a dragonfly. So he goes on a bit of a search to find him. But unfortunately, right before his brother named Khalid passed away, he told King that he can no longer be best friends with a boy named Sandy because Khalid overheard Sandy telling King that he's gay. So uh, King is struggling with the grief and loss of his brother, with the loss of his best friend, and also trying to figure out what his identity means amongst all of this uh, pain. Thank you so very much for talking with me today. Such a joy and continued success to you. Thank you very much. Last but certainly not least, here's Bill Konigsberg. Bill is the award-winning author of Openly Straight, Honestly Ben, The Porcupine of Truth, and most recently, The Music of What Happens. Welcome, Bill. Oh, thank you so much. It's nice to be here. We're delighted to have you, and we're thrilled that you'll be talking about the music of what happens. Thank you. I'm excited to do so. Tell our listeners a little bit about it. So the music of what happens is really the first time that I've purposefully written a love story. So so in the past, I had written a book uh, called Openly Straight, uh, which people read as if it was a love story, but it was that they were wrong. That was not what it was. It, it was a coming-of-age story. Uh, but what I didn't realize is people would read it as a love story and would expect a happy ending. And spoiler alert, if that's what you're looking for in that book, it's not a happy ending. So I wound up writing a second book for that book, but I really enjoyed writing about a relationship. So this time I jumped in headfirst and I wanted to write about two very different characters who fall in love. One is a boy named Max and uh, he is a dude bro. Uh, I am fluent in dude bro 
So that was easy for me. Uh, he's an athlete. I was an athlete. Uh, and then there's a more dramatic boy named Jordan, who is a poet. Uh, I also had that aspect of me too. So it's like two different sides of me falling in love, which is, I guess, what happens. And it happens on a food truck in Arizona in summer in Phoenix, or actually Mesa, Arizona. And it's extraordinarily hot. I, I live <laughs> there, and I just wanted to pay homage to that ridiculous heat that I live in. <laughs> well done. And you also explore the theme of masculinity, toxic masculinity. Could you describe why these themes are so important to you and what you're working out in them? I think for me, I, I tend to wind up writing about whatever's going on in my life and translating it into a young adult arena. I do believe that, in fact, pretty much every ill of our society comes to these messages that boys and men have gotten about who they're supposed to be. And gay boys are not immune to these things. So uh, all my life, uh, I was hearing messages such as, be a man, don't cry, don't have feelings, man up. And those messages, as I've gotten older, I've come to understand just how toxic they are, just how anti-reality they are. We, we are all emotional beings, and so they are damaging. And I wanted to look at that, and I wanted to look at it from the point of view of a gay boy who was very much like me. I mean, I was a, a very masculine gay boy. I was an athlete, and those messages really damaged me. And at the same time, I also wanted to look at the other side and the messages I got as a gay boy about who I was supposed to be. And I, and I think some of those messages are really damaging. The, the idea that as a gay boy, I'm less male. What does that mean? Why is that a good thing for society? So, so I really wanted to look at this other side of me, which is represented by Jordan, which always felt less than. Well, that's quite an extraordinary journey to really put yourself out there in your books and to be vulnerable, as you have said. How do you do that? It's, it's as if I don't know any other way. I tend to write books this way. I, I, I don't know that I find it interesting unless it kind of hits me in a frightening place. And so writing about feeling less than is about as scary as it gets for me, or it certainly was when I was writing this book. And so I knew that meant I had to write the book. I'd love for you to read an excerpt for our listeners and set the stage. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to read a part uh, that's just where Max and Jordan are beginning to have feelings for each other. And prior to the scene, now the chapters go back and forth between one for Jordan, one for Max. Uh, and in the previous chapter, Jordan showed Max a poem that he wrote because he had inadvertently hurt Max's feelings and he wanted to show something more real. So he showed him a poem he wrote about himself. And this is Max's reaction to that. He showed me his poem. No one has ever entrusted me with something that delicate before. It's weird, and I don't want to get all corny, but it's like I saw Jordan today for the first time. Like with the funny movies he wrote, I saw his humor, and I saw his snark with the rude poem about the food truck from hell, but this was different. This was real. I don't have people in my life who write poetry. I mean, Zayrod writes slam poetry, but it's political stuff, and, and that's fine. It's just not personal. Like, it flies off into anger without ever really revealing the soul. It made me wonder, 
Could a guy like Jordan, a guy that graceful, a guy whose walk looks like a dance, could he like someone as thick and clunky as me? Could he look past my rough exterior to see that I have a heart too? Because when you're like me, when you're a dude who plays baseball and hangs with his bros, you aren't supposed to have a heart. But here's the secret. I like tender, maybe more than I should. I wish I could show him my heart. That's dangerous, though. You show it, and people laugh. Nothing is worse than people laughing at your open heart, which is why I think guys don't do that so much, which is why I can't believe Jordan trusted me enough to show me that. I want to be worth that. Beautiful. It's so true in any relationship that one wants to build trust and to share secrets, but these two boys really grapple with that in an extraordinary way. We were just I was just talking to somebody about that challenge, that double-edged sword of being vulnerable and it's like being told over and over again in society, you know, the only way to really be happy is to be vulnerable. And then somebody punches you in the face, be vulnerable, <laughs> you know, and it's really hard. You know, it's hard to uh, open yourself up when you've been hurt. Your young readers are getting so many mixed messages in this world. What are you hearing from your young readers about their own experiences and how your books have helped them? I mean, it, it, it's... It, it makes me a little uncomfortable to talk about because it's hard sometimes to feel worthy of of people saying nice things. That's just how I how well, that's just the truth. But uh, you know, I, I get the sense that the books are are extraordinarily helpful, and I think the only way I can look at it is as an absence for me that that what I lacked growing up in the 1980s. That's how old I am. Uh, was books that really met my own heart where it was and really showed me myself. And so I think that these books feel authentic to the kids. And I mean, what a, it's a blessing for me, but I'm, I'm so glad if it helps somebody else. Now, how has the arena of gay literature or queer literature changed since you first started writing? Not to mention since you were a teen and it actually was invented for why? Uh, right. So it's changed so much, it's a little shocking to me. Since I was a teen, it's gone from nothing to a big something. But since my first book came around in 2008, when it was released, uh, that was considered a niche title. It got very little publicity. And there were, I think that year, maybe 30 books that had LGBTQIA protagonists in the young adult field. Nowadays, we're looking at 300. And there's so much more in terms of the uh, the other letters, because really, let's face it, uh, of the LGBTQIA, G led the way. Right. And suddenly we're getting more L and B and T and Q and I and A. And that's a beautiful thing. And we're also getting the intersections uh, of those groups. And, and also about this book. I mean, this book couldn't have happened back then because this isn't a book about coming out. Yeah. And so suddenly we're getting past the coming out story. So it's not a coming out story, which in and of itself is revolutionary. Well, for me, it was so common sense that it would be a coming out story. That's all I've known, that it actually took me a while to find that this wasn't a coming out story. I began writing as I was discovering my characters with the coming out aspect, only to find that the juice of the story was elsewhere, that really what I needed to focus on was 
what happens after, because that's the thing about being LGBTQIA. We all deal in some ways with coming out, and we all have lives after and before. And so I really wanted to focus there, and it felt exciting when I found that. Like it felt, oddly enough, new. So that was pretty neat. What are you working on now? So I'm working on a book that comes out next year called The Bridge. Here is the basic pitch of what that is. So uh, two, uh, a boy and a girl meet on top of the George Washington Bridge. They are both there to jump, and they interrupt each other. Based on what happens, uh, the moment that they are sitting there 100 feet apart with one leg over the ledge, ledge each, the world actually splits into different realities. In one reality, uh, the girl jumps and the boy decides not to, and we get the boy's story following that plus the girl's family's story. And when that story is over, we go right back to that first moment and get an alternative reality where the boy jumps, but the girl doesn't, and we get her story following that. And in a third story, we get basically they both decide not to jump, and so we get what happens when they both decide not to end their lives. And so really what this book is about is the huge impact on the world in those moments for those of us who have been depressed, who have felt like our lives don't matter and our choices don't matter, but the huge impact on, on everybody and everything of a loss of life. Thank you, Bill. We'll leave you all with some final thoughts about why representation matters. Representation matters because a lot of times we might not be aware of those who need it most. Representation matters because it may be the one thing that makes them feel not alone. Representation matters because it may give those the courage to be themselves. Representation in books matters so all children understand that they are valued and that they are not alone. Children should never be made to feel ashamed for being who they are. Representation of all people can save lives. No one deserves to grow up feeling like they are all alone. Representation matters because no child should feel like their identity is controversial. <laughs> like you, she had no weekend, I'm guessing. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> nobody, uh, nobody had a weekend. Nobody had a book weekend. Thanks so much again to Mason, Kaysen, and Bill for joining me. And thank you for listening. I hope that we've inspired you to read with pride and empathy this month and every month. To learn more about the books we discussed today, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.